Well, I wonder what, what the world thinks of when they think of Christians. What comes to mind? I know on Friday after the Supreme Court ruling, um, I spent probably more time on Twitter than I should have, but I was on there and I noticed one of the things that was trending was Christians. And I looked up to see comments that were, um, that were being laid out there, and there certainly were various opinions about, about those who, who follow Christ. But what ought the world think of, of Christians? Well, I think they ought to see us as, as distinct, as different. At, at best, we would be different because we're a people of, of conviction and compassion and love people who desire to see mercy and justice and who hold all of that with a posture of humility because there are people who who actually believe that the Bible's true and that God is real and that there's a day coming when they'll give judgment. That's at best. Or maybe at worst or somewhere close to worst would be that there are a bunch of self-righteous, hateful hypocrites who don't even live what they, they preach themselves. In one sense, we can't really, you know, you can't make somebody think rightly about you. And that's not really our our job. Though, our job is to look to the scriptures and say, God, but what do you want me to be? What do you call your people to be? What are we supposed to be like in this world? And as we, we do that, we see that God's intent for us as his people is to be a people who are indeed set apart, who are different, who are distinct, who are holy as he is holy. And that's the main theme that we find in the book of Leviticus. And that's where we are in our study of God's word. So if you have a Bible, join me in the book of Leviticus, chapter 11. Leviticus, chapter 11. It's on page 88 of the Bibles that are provided in the pew rack in front of you there in case you didn't bring a Bible with you. If you didn't bring a Bible, that one in front of you is now for you. It's a gift from us to you, so please take it home. Um, We're giving it away, so you're not stealing. Feel free to take it. Leviticus chapter 11 is where we are. Um, You'll remember so far, over the past uh, couple weeks, we've been studying here about The fact that God is a holy God who is set apart, who has called his people out of Egypt in this story, in this part of the the story of of, of the Bible and God's redemptive history, what he's doing, and that he has called these people unto himself to be his. And in chapters 1 through 7, he gave them holy practices, five offerings that they were supposed to do to publicly worship him at the tabernacle. Then in chapter 8 through 10, he gave them the holy priesthood, Um, God provided mediators to stand between him and sinful people, offering up these these sacrifices and and, and prayers and teaching on behalf of of God himself to his people. And now what we've done, we've come to the section, chapter 11 through 15, where we're going to see holy people. So we've seen these holy uh, practices, the holy priesthood, and now the holy people. What God's people, under the old covenant the law of Moses, were supposed to look like. It's in chapters 11 through 15. This week we're going to be just doing chapter 11, um, and next week we'll do 12 through, through 15. And 
the, the thing that hangs over, the banner that hangs over this whole section is chapter 11, verse 45. So if you want to look down at that, 11.45 says, I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. And in chapter 11 through 15, God gives Israel commands about various things that they're to do that mark them as separate from everyone around them. Now, this isn't the only section in Leviticus that has this, but, but we see it really clearly in this, this section here. And in chapter 11, he begins with the most basic issue that God's people would have been dealing with day in and day out, which we do as well, which is food. In your eating, he's going to say to Israel, you are going to be different. And I'm going to give you a bunch of laws about the way that you eat and what you eat that are going to set you apart from everybody who's around you. Okay? Now, for Christians, a text like Leviticus chapter 11 can seem kind of strange and potentially irrelevant because we know that Jesus has freed us from the law. That we are no longer under this this law of Moses under the old covenant because Christ himself has fulfilled it, set us free from the law, and now set us under a new covenant where we're free to eat all kinds of stuff. But I think as we walk through this, this section of Scripture, we're going to see much about what it means to be holy and how in God's intent in giving these food laws to his people, it teaches us much about what it means to be set apart in the world in which God has given, or God has placed us. Now to help us do this, we've got three big ideas that we're going to be thinking about. Number one is food. Food, which foods are allowed to eat and, and, and not eat under the law. Secondly, fulfillment, how Jesus fulfills the law, including the food laws. And then thirdly, faithfulness. Faithfulness. What, is it, what does it look like for Christians today to obey Leviticus chapter 11, being under the new covenant. Okay? So, food, fulfillment, faithfulness. Of course, there's three points, and of course, they all start with the same letter. Number one, food. The longest of the sections, okay? Food. Now, as we get into this, one of the things we need to understand is that these laws are not just God's health plan for the nation so that they will be the most fit bunch of people across the globe. That's, that's not what God is, is doing here. Now, it's true that there may be some health benefits, some hygiene benefits from the law, but that was not the purpose behind him giving um, Leviticus chapter 11. The purpose was to set them apart in all things as they worship God. To set them apart. So, so what's in their hands? What's on their tables? what's in their mouths, are going to mark them as distinct. And as we read through here, we're going to see the language of clean and unclean a whole bunch. In fact, when you read it through the book of Leviticus, you see that either clean or unclean shows up 191 times, which is a lot, okay? Um, by the way, I used a Bible software to figure that out. I didn't go through and count them all, okay, just in case you were wondering. 134 of those, which is 70%, show up in chapters 11 through 15. 
11 through 15, this section about be holy people, 134 times he's going to talk about clean and unclean. Because God wants his people to be ritually or ceremonially clean under the old covenant. Now, this is something important to understand when you're reading clean and unclean as we're about to do and go reading through these, these passages. Clean and unclean, that distinction isn't always the same as good and evil or righteous and sin. It's not always the same, okay? These are ceremonial or ritual categories of clean and unclean. So, for instance, in the Kell household, we have four kids. When they eat, they are defiled. They become unclean. And they are not allowed to venture into certain places in the house, like anywhere, (laughs) until they have washed their garments. They have made themselves clean by washing off, washing their hands, and then they can get on the white chair or the light green chair, okay? But that's not a moral issue. It's a clean or unclean issue. They are ceremonial impure, as it were, okay? I'm sure the illustration breaks down somewhere, but you know what I'm saying, okay? Now, normally when we read through this and we see clean and unclean, this is normally about whether the people of God under the Old Covenant were ceremonially clean, which allowed them to participate in the public worship of God. Because in everything that God, everything that God gave them in the law was intended to to basically awaken them to the fact that everything they did mattered. And that they always needed to be distinguishing between clean and unclean, pure and unpure, because God is clean and pure and holy and set apart, and sin is the opposite of him. He's teaching his people all the time. And he, he gives the children in the Old Testament lots of external teaching tools to instruct them about holiness. Okay? Um about what is kosher, okay? So that that word that a lot of times you hear about kosher food, which we're going to talk about here, it means fitting or proper. What's fitting or proper, okay? Now, as we're going to walk through chapter 11 here, we're going to see there's, he's going to talk about walking things, creatures on the land. He's going to talk about swimming things, creatures in the water, flying things, creatures in the sky, and dead things, and how they're supposed to interact with them, okay? Let's start out with some walking things. Chapter 11, verse one. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying that, to them, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, These are the living things that you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. Whatever parts the hoof and is cloven-footed, that means that the hoof splits, it has two toes, kind of like a deer, okay? and choose the cud, that means the food's chewed twice, among the animals you may eat. Nevertheless, among those that chew the cud, or part the hoof, you shall not eat these. The camel, because it chews the cud, but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the rock badger, because it chews the cud, but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the hare, because it chews the cud, but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the pig, because it parts the hoof and is cloven-footed, but does not chew the cud, is unclean to you. You shall not eat any of their flesh, and you shall not touch their carcasses. They are unclean to you. So God says, all the the animals that are out there walking around, before you eat one, you need to think. Does God say yes or no? Yes, to the cloven-footed, choose the cud. So cows, so burgers and steaks are in. Goats, sheep, 
deer, bison, antelope. You can get more of those in Deuteronomy 14 if you're dying for more lists of names of animals that you can eat, okay, under the Old Covenant. But no to camel cakes, badger burgers, rabbit roast, bacon ham, sausage sandwiches, okay? Those are all unclean, he says to you. Now, this menu would have made Israel distinct. So, you've got to remember, there are real people living in time and history in a culture that's very different. Thousands of years ago, but they're surrounded by neighbors, and they're all watching this people that God just pulled out of Egypt, and how God is relating to them. They're going to be watching them and learning from them. So Israel was free to eat beef from cows, but Egyptians would have found that repulsive because they worshipped cows, much like modern-day practicing Hindus. Pigs were unclean to Israel, but in Canaan, the pig was a primary source of food, as was a dog. They'd actually really basically eat everything, which was gross to the Israelites. Right? And, and, and basically, when we look through these food laws, Israel's eating habits, the way that God called them to, to eat and to not eat things, would have separated them from, from the Arabs who ate camels, Egyptians, Babylonians, and all the Canaanites. So they would have been distinguished. They would have been set apart in what they could eat and not eat from their neighbors. Right? Now, why? why? Why would God do that? Well, I'm sure that there's, there's several reasons, but one of the underlying reasons is because God knows what will happen if the people build relationships with their pagan neighbors and ate the food that was a part of their worship of idols. Because this is, this is what's true of, of, of Israel and the way God ordained the sacrifices. You, you remember they'll offer offerings and then they'll, they'll partake of that food. They'll eat it. Well, the nations around them did the same things with animals. They would offer them up and they would either eat them live sometimes or they would, they would cook them and eat them. And it would be, or sometimes they would just worship the animal itself. And God knows that Israel would fall into idolatry if they were hanging among them and eating the same things that they were eating. We see this in Revelation chapter 2, verse 14, and Numbers 25, 1 through 3, where Balak, uh, the, so Balaam was the guy with the donkey thing. If you remember that, he spoke with the, with the donkey. And, um, he was going to curse Israel but couldn't do it. Well, he told Balak, I can't curse them, but here's what you can do. You can get them to hang out with their, the pagan neighbors and have them start eating with them. And when they start eating with them, they're going to start worshiping their gods and they're going to give in and they're going to intermarry and that's how you can get them. And that's exactly what happened to Israel. They began partaking of the food of the nations around them and so by doing, they gave in to the idolatry. Now, one of the distinctions between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant is under the Old Covenant, God was dealing with Israel as with children. That's what it says in the book of Galatians. But, but now in the book of Galatians, it says, but he deals with us under the New Co Covenant, those who are in Christ, as sons. So now, rather than having an inward focus, there's an outward focus that does call us to engage with those that are around us, though with wisdom about what we partake of and don't partake of in regards not so much of food, though there's a whole section on food sacrifice to idols, but much more in everything else. But it's the same kind of idea. God's teaching his people 
there's ways that you're like those that are around you, and there's ways that you're not like those that are around you, because you're my people. You're holy. You're set apart unto to me. So that's walking things. Now swimming things. Verse 9. These you may eat of all that are in the waters. Everything in the waters that has fins and scales, whether in the seas or the rivers, you may eat. So salmon, tuna, flounder, tilapia are okay. Verse 10. But among anything in the seas or the rivers that does not have fins and scales of the swarming creatures in the waters and the living creatures that are in the waters is detestable to you. So eel is out. No shrimp creole, no fried shrimp, no buffalo shrimp, no shrimp. No red lobster, no Joe's Crab Shack, no catfish fry, no calamari. All shellfish is out. And he says here, it's detestable. Not because it doesn't taste good, and God's just hating on shellfish, but because God said they made Israel ceremonially unclean and unable to publicly worship him. He said, these things are unclean, don't partake, or you can't approach me. Ceremonially unclean. But what about flying things, Lord? Okay, verse 13. These are the things you shall detest among the birds. They shall not be eaten. They are detestable. The eagle, the vulture, verse 14, the falcon, verse 15, the raven, verse 16, the ostrich, the seagull, and the hawk. Verse 17, four kinds of owls. Verse 18, the vulture, Verse 19, the stork, and thankfully the bat. All right. Now when you go between here and Deuteronomy 24, there's, you find 24 dirty birds. Okay? They're not allowed to, to be eaten. I don't know whether you categorize a bat as a bird or not. That's not the point. The point is, these are, God says no. Now there's others that are assumed to be okay. Right? So you've got the, the chicken, the duck, geese, dove, turkey. And then I'm sure everyone was wondering about bugs. So verse 20 through 23, he talks about what bugs you can eat. Verse 20, all winged insects that go on all fours are detestable to you. Yet among the winged insects that go on all fours, you shall eat those that have jointed legs above their feet with which to hop on the ground. Of them you may eat the locust of any kind, cricket of any kind, and the grasshopper of any kind but all other winged insects that have four feet are detestable to you. Your most famous locust eater in the Bible? John the Baptist. So when John the Baptist was preparing to, to uh, proclaim that Christ was the Messiah who was coming, he was out in the wilderness eating locusts and honey and was clean. Okay? So he was, he was allowed to do that according to Levitical law. Now again... The purpose in all of this, we're going to see, is that God is, he's showing that there's things around you all the time. And, and this was, I don't know if I would forget to say it or not, so I'm going to say it here. I was reading through, um, uh, Charles Spurgeon had some comments on one of these, these sections. He was an old um, 1800s uh, pastor in, in London. And he talked about, much more poetically than I'm about to, about the way that by giving these laws about animals, God's people all the time would have been walking around and would have been engaging with what they see. They would have been watching. There goes an animal that's clean. There goes an animal that's not clean. There goes a rabbit that's unclean. There's a bird. Nope, unclean. Everything all the time, they would, have, they would have had their senses turned up to be aware of the world around them. 
which is strikingly similar to what God does when he gives us his Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit comes inside of those who have trusted in Christ, and the law is now written on our hearts, the law of, of love. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. Hate sin. Love holiness. And what, what the Spirit does is he awakens us to the world that is around us so that everything we see, we see, hopefully, through the lens of holiness. Does this please the Lord or not please the Lord? Does this agree with God's word or not agree with God's word? God is teaching his people here discernment. To be able to know that there's things in the world that you don't partake of. And there's things in the world that you enjoy. I thought that was a great insight and one that is helpful for us. That we can pray that God would help us at all times as not children under the law, but as sons and daughters under the law of Christ, the new covenant, that we would have a discerning eye. Being able to watch the news and say, that honors the Lord, that doesn't honor the Lord, and here's why. Or, yes, we'll watch this movie or we won't watch this movie because of what's in it and what it's teaching. Or being able to even watch a show that may be fine, but being able to see the worldview that's in it and see, how am I buying into that lie? Or how is that encouraging me to help uh, follow after Christ? May God make us a discerning people. All right, so we've seen running things and swimming things and flying things and now dead things, right? Verse 24. Verse 24, And by these ye shall become, become unclean, all the things that was before it that we just read. Whoever touches the carcass, their carcass shall be unclean until evening. Because that's the, when the new day begins. And then he goes on in verse, basically verses 25 down through 31. It summarizes all this. It basically says, you don't touch unclean animals when they're dead. And if you touch an unclean animal when it's dead, you become ceremonially unclean. And then down in verse 39, um, tells you not to, to touch clean animals when they're dead either, unless it's part of the sacrifice. Okay, so that's, that's permissible. And one of the things that God is even teaching here is that that life and death are to remain unmixed. That God is the eternal one who has always been and always will be, but that sin is what brings death into the world. And you're supposed to make a distinction between what's alive and what's dead. In the same way that we're always making distinctions between what it means to be alive to God and to be dead to, to sin. But not only are they supposed to be set apart from death, but their stuff is as well. So verse 32, look at this. Anything on which any of them, the, the dead animals, falls when they are dead shall become unclean. A wood or a garment or a skin or a sack, it must be put into water and it shall be unclean until evening. Then it shall be clean. So you just wash your stuff. But, verse 33, if any of them falls into any earthenware vessel, all that is in it shall be unclean and you shall break it. You just went to Kohl's and bought you a new stack of cups, and in falls the dead gecko. Trash it. Verse 35. Falls on your oven or stove. You break it. You just remodeled your kitchen, and then there's a dead rat. Game over, right? You've got to trash it, he says. You break it. Now, obviously, they didn't have the type of appliances that we do today, but the point is 
the things on which you cook and out of which you drink, they're to be set apart. Everything that you are and everything that you have is to be set apart to the Lord. Don't mix it with death. Don't mix it with the things that I say are, are unclean. Now, some people, including me, wonder why did God make certain animals clean and others unclean? If you want an interesting study, look it up, and you will find all kinds of interesting and weird answers. Um, the, the most popular one is, is about hygiene, that, that God is concerned about his people's health, so you don't eat pigs because they're dirty animals and that many of these animals are, are scavengers. Um, and while some of that may be true, there are some health and hygiene overlaps here. Um, that's not super convincing because in the New Testament, God says free game. You can eat, you can eat anything uh, as long as your conscience says, says yes to it, an informed conscience. So I, I don't know that I would, I would put all my, my bet on that. I think it is more of, there, there may be some, some fact, this is a guess, that they do see these animals associated with, with death as scavengers, and that that is, is viewed as different than life, and that they are to be set apart from that. So, but the function and the purpose is really clear. Food laws served to keep Israel distinct in the culture that God placed them. They are to be different in their culture. And as they obeyed God by avoiding certain foods, they would be kept from engaging in relationships that would lead them into the sin of idolatry. God was making his people holy. And we know that's the point of all of these because of verse 41 through 47. This is how he, he concludes the section. It says, Every swarming thing that swarms on the ground is detestable. It shall not be eaten. Whatever goes on its belly and whatever goes on all fours or whatever has many feet, any swarming thing that swarms on the ground, you shall not eat, for they are detestable. Verse 43, For you shall not make yourself, I'm sorry, you shall not make yourself detestable with any swarming thing that swarms, and you shall not defile yourself with them and become unclean through them. For, whenever you're studying your Bible and you see the word for, it's explaining that this is why. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy. For I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. Verse 45. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall, therefore, be holy for I am holy. God says to Israel, People, listen to me. I'm the one who made you. And I'm the one who sought you. And I'm the one who provided the blood of a lamb so that you would miss the judgment that fell upon Egypt. And I'm the one who split the Red Sea. And I'm the one who led your hand with a burning fire and with a cloud of smoke. I led you and I protected you and I guided you out from the slavery that you were enslaved in. The certain death that was there with Pharaoh over you. I set you free. I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And I did that to make you my own. You're mine. 
Listen to this from Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 2, which is basically, so Deuteronomy is the retelling of the law to Israel after everybody died in the wilderness to the second generation. But this is what he says about these food laws. At the beginning of it, he starts it like this. You are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And elsewhere in Deuteronomy, he says, I didn't do this because of how great you were, but I did it because I loved you. Beautiful, electing love. That God, for no reason in anything that Israel ever did or could do, all they ever did was mess it up. But God, in His mercy, for some reason, because of the kind intention of His will, set His affections upon these enslaved people and said, they are mine, and I am bringing them out from death and bringing them unto Myself, and they are My treasured possession. They are My people. So what I want you to do is I want you to obey My laws. Because in everything that I'm doing, I'm teaching you distinction. I'm teaching you discernment. I'm teaching you that there's things that you don't get into and things that you embrace. Because I, I'm holy, which means to be set apart. God is set apart from all evil and all wickedness. And he says, my people are to be the same. They are to be marked distinctly in the world. That when the world looks at my people, they should say, they are different. And the reason they're different is not just because they make their own clothes and make terrible movies and all these kinds of things. That's not what sets them apart. What sets them apart is that they're holy. They're a pure people who discern between clean and unclean, or in our context, sin and not sin. Because they know that I'm theirs and they are mine. Love now is to compel the people to follow the Lord's law with, with joy and hopefulness, knowing that His word was good for them. Because every word that falls from the mouth of the Lord is true, and it's given for the good of His people. So it's insanity to say, God, you can't speak on a subject, but we're going to say we want to do it this way. God says, my people don't do that. My people know better. My people know They were to be holy as God was holy. They were to hate sin, love truth, righteousness, justice, and in so be a light to the nations. They were to be a light to the nations. The problem is that Israel, as you read through their history, they didn't obey. They didn't just obey, disobey food laws, but God gave 613 commandments, and along the way they broke them all again and again and again. And they serve as a picture of the fact that all humans everywhere have broken God's laws. We don't do what God has called us to do. We say, God, your word that has come down is, that is true, we're going to dismiss it and we're going to go our own way. And that looks different for everybody, but it's true. The Bible says that all people have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every single person who has ever lived has rejected God and his rule over them. And he said, I will not be holy, but I will indulge in what I want. And that is why what the law cries out for is somebody, just one person, 
who would come and who would fulfill it all and keep it. Praise be to God that He came and His name is Jesus. Which brings us to point two, which is fulfillment. Fulfillment. Every one of the 613 laws that God gave to Israel was broken by Israel. And we, as though the most of us in here in this room are Gentiles, and um, we rejected God's rule over us as seen in creation and seen in conscience. And many of our consciences informed by the truths that are in, in the Bible. Every one of the 613 commandments that God gave to Israel was, was broken, but their only purpose wasn't just to show them their sin, but it was to show them it's a shadow, like we read in Colossians earlier. It's a shadow of one who's going to come, Christ himself. Hear this from Romans chapter 10, verse 4. Christ, meaning Jesus, is the end of the law for righteousness to everybody who believes. He's the end, which can also mean goal. Jesus is the goal to which the law points. And and when it's reached in him, because he came as the God-man, and he lived perfectly obedient to God, obeying God in all things, he fulfilled the law, which is what he said he would do. Matthew 5, 17, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill them. All of the Old Testament's pointing to Christ himself, and he comes and he does it perfectly. And then, in his mercy, the perfect law keeper went to the cross to die there and receive the judgment that imperfect law breakers like us deserve to receive. And there God's wrath was poured out on him. And then Jesus, three days later, He rose from the dead. He rose from the dead. All of Israel's laws point to the fact there's a distinction between life and death. And now, the open grave, there is a distinction. I am alive, the only one, says Jesus. He's alive to now be the end of the law in regards to righteousness. Meaning the way that somebody is made right with God and have a right standing before him is not by keeping all of the laws, but rather looking to the one who kept them in our place and who died for when we didn't and rose to now by his spirit put the new law on our heart that we might walk in holiness. Jesus fulfilled all the laws, even the food laws. How? By becoming the true meal on which we are to feast by faith. John 6, 48, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The way that someone is made right with God and receives eternal life is not by keeping all of the laws. These were a mere shadow pointing to Christ who is the substance himself. So what he calls now is for us to do is to to repent to turn away from sin and rebellion, to turn unto Christ, and to partake of Him by faith. To believe that He is the living bread that nourishes the starving souls. To partake of Him and to believe. And for those who do trust in Christ and are born again, the Holy Spirit of God is now within them, and they are brought into what's called a new covenant. The old covenant 
the law of Moses was for the children of Israel, a distinct ethnic group that was to be set apart uniquely by all of their laws. But now in Christ, there is a new covenant where God is break, breaks down the walls between Jews and Gentiles, and he's going to make a new person, one new man. Now, we see God do away with the, the food laws in the book of Acts, chapter 10. You can, you can turn there, you can follow along, or I'm just going to read Acts chapter 10. This is after the death and the resurrection of Christ. It's after his ascension, which was 40 days after his resurrection. It's after the Holy Spirit has been given and the gospel is beginning to go out to the ends of the earth by the apostles. And Peter is hungry, and he's going to go up on the rooftop to pray. And while he does, God is going to show him, he's going to give him a vision. Acts chapter 10, starting in verse 9. The next day, as they, the messengers from Cornelius, were on their journey and approaching the city of Joppa, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry, and he wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. Verse 12. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. So basically a, a slideshow of Leviticus 11. Verse 13. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And this is classic Peter, verse 14. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. So what is on this sheet that God shows to him are all the unclean animals. And God tells him, Get up, kill it, and eat it. Verse 15. The voice came to him a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. God gives Peter a vision and shows that now, in Christ, under the new covenant, the food laws are fulfilled and abolished. Not, not abolished in the sense of dismissed as um, as being wrong or evil, but fulfilled in the fact that Christ himself is the true bread. And this mirrors the very work of Jesus. In, in Mark chapter 7, Jesus is having a, a conversation with the religious leaders of the day, and they're getting on to him about why he doesn't keep the traditions, um, why he doesn't wash his hands. And he says to his disciples in Mark 7 verse 18, he says, Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. Thus, he declared all foods clean. Jesus, both in his ministry and there in Acts 10, now says, foods, you can eat anything you want. Now, there's discussion about conscience and food sacrifice to idols in 1 Corinthians chapters 8 through 10, but, but the point is that the Old Testament law about food is fulfilled. Now, why does God do this? Because his ultimate aim is to make a holy people. This, uh, the food laws and abolishing them, isn't ultimately about food. It's about fellowship between people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. You see, in the law, there was this wall that was put up between Jews and Gentiles. To where you don't, go, you don't go talk to them. They're not, you're separate from them. Well, 
Ephesians 2.14. Jesus says, it says that Jesus has broken down in his flesh, meaning on the cross, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Those are the things we just read in chapter 11, some of them. That he might create in himself one new man in the place of two. You see, what Christ has done, he's done as he's, he's come not just for one nation, but he's come for people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. We went around this room and said where we were from, I mean, this is a diverse crowd from all over the place, all kinds of different tribes, tongues, and nations. It's because the gospel has now gone out, and we, who are Gentiles, have been grafted into the promises that God made to Israel, the promise of Messiah. And this is the very thing that we saw Jesus do in his ministry. He was in the world, but he was not of the world. He was holy, but he was not a hermit. He sat at the table with sinners and sought to show them his grace and truth. He was with them, but he was never of them. He was among them, but he was always distinct. Not conforming himself to them, but conforming them to himself what Jesus did. And that is now what he calls the church to do and to be. A people who are in the world, but not of the world. Who are marked by holiness. Not so much by what we eat or don't eat, but why we do what we do in everything. Which leads us to our final our final consideration, which is number three, faithfulness. Faithfulness. Jesus ushers his people into a new way of relating to God. It's still by faith. It's always by faith. But in Christ now, he does away with all of the external symbols of distinction and now produces a new kind of distinction. Where what marks God's people now is holiness. Holiness in Everything that we think, do, and say. Brothers and sisters, those of us who are, who are in Christ, I want to say, if there is ever a time that we need to give consideration to this lesson from Leviticus chapter 11, it's now. I prayed in our pastoral prayer that, that God would awaken us to the time in which we live. We live in a very interesting time in history. It is amazing that God in his kind providence has put us in a day like this, in a, in a part of the world like this, in a time where it is very clear that the world does not love God. Listen, praise God that cultural Christianity is dead. That is a glorious thing. It's a wonderful thing. Not because we want to see immorality increase. And yes, it is true that, that moralism restrained evil for a long time. But listen, moralism saves no one. What saves people is Christ. And what God does to save a people is that he takes out a people from their darkness of sin. And he saves them. He gives them a new heart, which gives them new loves and new affections. And he places them among the people again so that they might now shine as a light to the nations. So that when people look at Christians, though they may disagree with what we, what we stand for, what they ought see in us is the very same distinction of Christ himself. That they would see a man or a woman 
who is in the world but not of the world. Who loves people and has compassion on people and can weep with people that we terribly disagree with on very important things. But we love them. We serve them. And we walk as a distinct people among them, showing them that in Christ there is life. A life that a sin-blinded soul is groping for in the darkness, looking for anything to make it complete. The only thing that completes us is Christ Himself. We were made to know Him, to be one with Him. So what ought to mark us is holiness in our marriages. Marked by husbands and wives loving one another, and staying married. One of the biggest things that, that people who would disagree with us on what marriage is throws back into the argument all the time is how if marriage was so important to Christians, then why are they divorcing all the time? Now listen, I understand there are some very difficult situations, and I understand that Jesus gives some provisions for divorce, but in general... I just want to call us to be a people, husbands and wives, those of us who are married, who will keep our vows that we made to our spouses, husbands to wives, wives to husbands, and that we made before the Lord. And that we would shine as a distinct marker of what it means for Christ to love the church. And that, that in our meals, that they would be marked by thanksgiving. That, that when we eat, we realize that it, it's actually a gift from God. So yes, think about what you eat, but, but think about why you eat it. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Give God thanks that he gave you food and that it tastes good. Praise God. Doesn't that ever blow your mind? Like he gives you food that tastes good. All sorts of colors. I mean, it's amazing really amazing. So next time you peel an orange, like do it for the glory of God. Like realize you get this pre-packaged amazing thing of goodness and you take the, the pre-packaged thing off and it's already sliced up for you. And you're like, it's amazing. And it smells good. And it tastes good. And you put two in your garbage disposal and it cleans it out. It's amazing. Like God does that. And as Israel was supposed to be aware of everything around them that was clean or unclean, in the same way, pray that God would give us eyes to be aware of everything around us. That we might engage by faith. That we might walk in holiness. That we might be a people who are distinct. That our words would be marked with grace and truth. That our fear would be the fear of the Lord, not the fear of man. Because we have a hope that rests in the one who raises people from the dead. So what's the worst thing they can do is kill you? Like, that's okay. Because then you're going to be with Jesus. We're not wishing that. We don't want persecution. But if it comes, we'll be distinct in the way that we endure and we trust the Lord. All the while having postures that are marked with humility and not self-righteousness. This is what's to mark Christians. A people that are to be holy as God is holy. Not as the children were with what they ate, but as sons and daughters in all things. 
set apart unto the Lord for his glory and for our good. Delray Baptist Church, let us be a people who are holy unto the Lord by all the strength that he supplies by his grace in his spirit as instructed through his word. Let's help each other to fight for this, that God might be seen among the nations as worthy of worship. Father, we say thank you for your word, which is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And we pray that you would help us to be thankful for Jesus, the one who came and who, who fulfilled all the laws that we have broken and then rose from the dead. Father, thank you that in him we can have forgiveness of sins and be reconciled to our maker. And Father, we pray that now as we prepare to take of the supper that you have given to your people, that we would do it in faith and remembering the one who was the bread of life. And that, God, as we leave, that you would give us grace to live distinctly wherever you put us, for the glory of your name. We pray in the name of Jesus.